and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm your co-host, Elizabeth Muller. Today we have uh, Brendan Charles, a, a PhD student, um, joining us. He is a biologist of sorts, um, and we're interested to see what he's doing. So, Brendan, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. Brendan, can you just tell us first um, what 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 program are, are you in, and uh, like uh, how did you get started in that? So I'm in my PhD of neuroscience. Um, I actually did my master's in neuroscience as well, also here at Western, um, but on a vastly vastly different project. So uh, for my master's, I was focusing on the the neurogenetic basis of complex behaviors in uh, flies and now i'm doing something completely different which is really really molecular in nature okay well uh, why, don't, why don't you start off by telling us uh you know broadly speaking um what your current project is about right so i work um on a molecule called trnas or rather a, a class of molecules called trnas um, so trnas are really important for the process of making proteins so for um, those of you that may not know, proteins are basically literal molecular machines that do all sorts of jobs within a cell. You know, some proteins, you know, cut sugars, some proteins are transporters, signaling proteins. There are, there are a whole bunch of different jobs that proteins can do. And they're all made using a process called translation. And for this process of translation to occur, tRNAs need to function properly. And uh, Hopefully the, the term RNA is like at the center of everyone's kind of zeitgeist right now because of the vaccines, you know, mRNA vaccines. Hopefully some people are familiar at least with um, RNA existing. Uh, tRNAs are a, a version of those RNA molecules uh, that facilitate this translation process that produces proteins. So what I study specifically is when those tRNAs that I've mentioned um, aren't working properly. So certain mutate, they can become mutated just like any other uh, nucleotide or DNA sequence, and specific mutations in those tRNAs can cause them basically to cause mutations at the protein level. And then when you have mutated proteins, of course, the jobs that those proteins do can become affected, um, and then we get you know problems at the cell level. So that might contribute hypothetically to disease. So that's exactly what I'm looking at right now. So you mentioned a translation process. Um, I'm wondering if you could just maybe share a little bit more about what that is. Right. So the translation process is, is kind of the means by which we actually get the information out of DNA. So everyone kind of refers to DNA as kind of the, you know, the, the genetic code for all life. And that's very, very true. Translation is, is basically taking that code and translating it into a, an actual functional thing, which is protein. So the, the DNA is the blueprint. And the protein is the actual machine that does a job. So the translation process takes that DNA sequence and decodes it or translates it into a functional protein. And like I said, the tRNAs are completely, completely integral to that process. And when they're not working properly, our machines all get built a little bit wrong and that can mess with cell function. Um, I mean, these, these things are really tiny and it feels like Kind of uh, kind of difficult to conceptualize how how one actually manipulates these things. So, how, how do you how do you modify a, a tRNA? Yeah, so that's also actually hopefully something that will be at the center of you know everyone's zeitgeist right now is um, 
So we in our lab use a mutagenesis PCR protocol. So PCR, of course, everyone I'm sure has heard of at this point because that's the test that is most commonly used and most accurately used for, for COVID testing. We use a modified version of that that basically um, introduces mutation into the copied material. So for those uh, of you that maybe are less familiar and maybe have heard the term, the PCR test for COVID or whatever, basically what a PCR does is it has a, a little targeting region uh, of DNA. So it has little bits of DNA in it called primers that bind to very, very specific sequences that are in your DNA sample. So for a COVID test, that little DNA targeting primer is going to be specific to a gene that is only in the COVID test or in COVID. Excuse me. And then uh, it'll amplify that specific region. And it does that over and over and over again until by the end of several, several cycles, it's called you know, the CR and PCR central chain reactions. It does it over and over and over again until you have, you know, thousands upon thousands of copies of this gene that you would only find in COVID. What we do is we use that exact same process, but there's a little bit of a mismatch in the little targeting system. So there's, you know, really, really close pairing at first, and then a portion of the way into the targeting system, there's one little error. And that little error will be produced in all of the copies that is made during the, the chain reaction. So by the time we get the end of the reaction, we have all of these copies that have been made with this small little error. And then when we introduce that PCR product into the rest of the, the DNA uh, of, of the fly that we're using, that fly will contain that one little error in the tRNA and therefore have that kind of altered tRNA function. How do you go about finding what the error is in the mutation? So we actually have um, a really fancy sequencing facility here on campus. So Robarts Research, um, they they do full sequencing of uh, you know spe specified regions. So once I go through this process, I, I put that uh, PCR product wherever I might want to put it, and then I send it over to Robarts, and they'll tell me exactly what the sequence is. I can use that to confirm, okay, yes, my my PCR thing, my mutagenesis did in fact introduce that problem. And then I can go forward with, uh, you know, putting that into flies or whatever else. So, we, yeah, that, that's a really kind of nice luxury that we have here on campus, access to that Robarts facility. That's, it's cool that you're uh, able, to, able, able to do all this sort of like <laughs> technical stuff with, with collaborations with so many, so many people. Yeah. And it and kind of uh, simplifies the process a bit to not have to carry all Very the much weight. Very so. um, Definitely. Um, I think the, the one um best helper is the fly itself <laughs> so maybe yeah, can you tell us uh, what, what is the flies doing once you somehow <laughs> yeah. get the get the dna in there how do you tell whether they're they've got uh, something wrong with their trnas or not yeah so i often get you know very frequently when i tell people what i work on i get a lot of raised eyebrows with the whole fly thing um but i think people kind of <laughs> probably out of pride underestimate how similar flies are to us. So there's actually a lot of remarkable similarities between how they're built um, in terms of like what the stuff that we're talking about, like tRNAs and proteins and all of that, all of those for the most part are really, really, really similar. So even though, you know, they're pretty obvious differences in terms of size and general shape and all that, when we're talking about the really, really fine scale things, they're remarkably, remarkably similar, which makes them super, super useful in understanding these kinds of things, like, you know, this, this small of a scale. Um, in terms of what they look like when we actually introduce the specific 
um, problems that I'm talking about, these, these tRNA problems. So this is very, very new research. So up until now, this whole tRNA problem had never been uh, tackled in a multicellular organism. So most of the research that's been done is in yeast cells or E. coli cells or single cell organisms. So a year ago, actually, the lab mate that's sitting very, very <laughs> close to me right now and is being very politely silent, he developed the very first model of uh, tRNA problems in a multicellular organism. So he was the first to introduce these mutations in flies. Uh, and he's shown some really, really cool data from that so far, uh, which I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about. So uh, he's, he's shrugging at me, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. <laughs> so uh, what's really cool so far is that there are huge differences between the sexes uh, in what kind of um, phenotypes we call them uh, that are shown. So, and what I mean by phenotypes is basically what differences do we see between that and a normal fly? What, what are they actually presenting with? So it turns out that females who have a lot of these tRNA problems, we, we call them mistranslating tRNAs. Um, those that are doing this mistranslation via these tRNAs uh, really severely die way earlier than we expect them to. So there are changes to the lifespan because of all the problems that are introduced from these tRNAs. Interestingly though, the same is not exactly true of males. So there is some early die-off. Um, so some of the population does die earlier than we expect them to, but there are also others um, that are male that live longer than we anticipate them to when the tRNA problems are uh, of the mild level, which is really, really interesting. So we're, there are a bunch of experiments that are being conducted in our lab right now, not particularly by me actually, uh, but rather our uh, another master's student named Jesse, who is trying to figure out the molecular basis of why do these males that have mild tRNA problems live longer than they're supposed to. And I'm just wondering, like, flies are pretty tiny. How do you go about, you know, injecting the, the proteins that you need into these, into these flies? Like, is there a process for that, for the non-scientists <laughs> among us? There most definitely is a process, and it's, um, it's very weird. Uh, but very cool, I think, is, you know, somebody's very clearly biased. Um, but basically, it's called a micro-injecting protocol. So flies, um, this is another kind of really cool thing about working with flies, and it's, it's much easier to create these modified genetics in flies because they develop externally. So flies lay eggs. Uh, they have, uh, when, and the eggs kind of transform into larvae, uh, which are kind of like little maggot version of flies. And... Uh, Basically, because the eggs are not growing inside of the female, we can take those eggs uh, as an embryo form and use the smallest needles that you've ever seen to inject DNA directly into the cells that will eventually you know, produce offspring. So we get it into their germline, it's called basically the, the cells that will produce the next generation. Um, so that's exactly what we do. We take DNA and put them right into the embryos. And when that fly becomes an adult and passes on its genes, that offspring will contain nothing but cells that contain that modified DNA. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a really weird process. Like I said, the, the needles are incredibly small. We have to make the needles ourselves. We have a glass puller that we make the needles with. Um, the amounts of liquid that we're dealing with are incredibly, incredibly small to make sure that we don't explode the embryos. It's, it's very intricate, very weird, but, um, you know, as someone who's been working for flies, uh, four flies with flies uh, for a very long time. It's, it's really cool to have access to that kind of stuff. Some might even call you the Lord of the Flies. <laughs> so some might. I would encourage them not to, but they might <laughs> against my will. 
uh yeah i mean the fly work has got lots of uh cool and weird techniques that you can uh employ uh what got you interested in in doing this type of work so i actually did my my first fly stuff when i was in undergrad um way back in the day at nipissing university up north um so i had a really fantastic thesis supervisor there uh, dr tony parks and he has a fly lab there he was kind of the genetics guy uh at nipissing so i i you know took an interest in his classes early on and uh, was lucky enough to do a thesis in his lab and, uh, you know, kind of bonded with the flies there, I guess you could say <laughs> for the first time. But obviously, like, I, I think it's, again, incredibly biased, but the utilities, like you mentioned, of, of the, the genetic tools that exist in, in flies is, is absolutely insane. And I can't imagine being in genetics and molecular neuroscience and not at least having a passing interest in working with flies because of all these cool tools that don't exist anywhere else. Um, yeah, so I, I credit a lot of that exposure, of course, to, to Nipissing and, and Dr. Parks. Uh, and then, like I said, I came here for my master's with Amanda and kind of got into the behavioral side of all of that really cool genetic technology. And that was also really cool. And now I'm right back to the molecular. So it seems like, I don't know, it just seems like a model where you can do just about anything that you're interested in to a really, really cool degree. You mentioned something interesting. You mentioned the behavioral side. So flies have behavior and <laughs> is it different female to male? Can you just give us a little bit of a teaser about that? Because you, yeah, so you said behavioral. That is uh, a shockingly good uh, transition actually to the work that I did in my master's. So uh, like I mentioned, I was kind of doing the, the neurogenetic basis of complex, quote unquote, complex behaviors in, in fruit flies. And, I do get that question quite a bit too of like flies do stuff. Well, I thought flies just kind of like aimlessly existed and like did whatever. But yeah, they do. They demonstrate a lot of the behaviors that you would expect of, of most animals. They, um, you know, they compete for courtship. They, they're aggressive in the right context. Uh, they, they sleep, they, they, you know, they do all of the, the different things that you would expect of a normal animal, uh, but they do it on such a small scale that nobody typically notices it. Um, but the, the fun side of it, that was actually what my master's was on, uh, was the aggression side of it. So people don't necessarily think of flies as an innately aggressive animal, uh, but there are contexts in which they can be made to fight each other. Um, and that is exactly what I did for my, for my master's. So we were using a, a really cool genetic system, which is kind of standard in, in Drosophila biology or fly biology which allows us to express protein we might be interested in in very specific subsets of cells. So we, or a previous student, had kind of identified um, a set of nine neurons in the brain, really, really small group of neurons. And if you hyperactivate those neurons, they weren't mating up with males. So we thought, oh, okay, maybe these neurons are somehow uh, related to female receptivity to male courtship. But then upon closer inspection of the behaviors of like actually seeing what are they doing, because typically female rejection of a male looks a specific way. So we start looking at the videos and we notice that the, the females aren't doing the behaviors that you would typically expect of rejection behavior, but instead they're beating the heck out of them. They're actively being aggressive and chasing away the males. But then we figure out, okay, we, we need to run more experiments. We, we do exactly that. And, and we figure out and we confirm that yes, this it, it is the case that these females are way more aggressive than they should be. Um, and then we you know, ran a bunch of experiments regarding that and just kind of characterizing this aggression behavior and what kind of context would incite it and 
was a really really cool project and i'm, I'm still i kind of have some, some toes in it still but uh yeah behaviors do exist in flies that was the basis of my masters and i also got flies to to beat the heck out of each other which was pretty cool Oh, very, very fun. Oh, I actually forgot to mention one of the most enticing parts of that project. Sorry, I'll talk about it for way too long if you let me. But if we do that exact same manipulation in males, they're not super aggressive. So I, I remember in your question that you asked uh, if their behaviors were different between males and females. And the answer is yes, they, they are. And we seem to have found a very specific subset of neurons that controls some of those. So. Yeah, that aggression phenotype, the, the behavior that we induced did not happen at all in males bearing the exact same genetic modification. So it seems as though we found, again, the subset of only nine neurons that is responsible for female-specific aggression, which is pretty neat. Um, can I ask a question about um, kind of comparing lab flies versus uh, wild flies? So sure. if I, if I were to find some flies just, you know, flying around my kitchen and, <laughs> and catch them, uh, would they, would they act, uh, similarly in terms of those behaviors that you're seeing or, and do they have like tRNA mistranslations? Uh, how, how much of this stuff that you're studying do we see in wild flies? So a couple different answers. So in terms of the behaviors, I would hope that they behave pretty similarly. Um, there is, of course, going to be some differences. So these um, flies that we've been using um, for, you know, all, all Drosophila work has this kind of uh, caveat, which is that these stocks have been kept isolated for a very, very long time, which means they might slowly kind of drift away from the norm. Um, so there might be subtle differences, but for the most part, if we're talking about aggression and, and courtship behaviors and all of these kinds of things. I would imagine that those are kind of robust enough to persist even in these weird lab cultures that kind of exist in their own little bubble um, and then with regards to that second half of the question which was like how would they differ in terms of their either their aggression or their tRNA problems or whatever uh, they would probably differ pretty substantially in the aggression because that's a very specific um, set of transgenic tools that's been put in there you know the the genetic controls that we use for our experiments display basically no aggression at all. Like I said before, they're not innately angry animals. They're pretty content with just hanging around. Um, to, to see a fly in the wild doing the behaviors that we have observed would be pretty rare. It, it's inducible under very, very specific circumstances, like serving the flies and making them fight over food and that kind of stuff. But uh, on your countertop where they're probably pretty happy destroying the bananas that you bought two weeks ago or whatever they're probably not going to be doing that kind of aggressive behavior um with regards to the trna stuff that is also a, a different answer so trna mutations are surprisingly common um so they're not all equal in terms of their potential for you know contribution to disease or whatever but they do exist at a, a really, really high rate in humans, at least. So there are lots of full genome sequencing studies that kind of have identified mutations um, in humans uh, for tRNA specifically. So it turns out that roughly 10% of uh, everyone's tRNA genes, there's a whole bunch of tRNA genes, it's just a, a, a smorgasbord of them, but about 10% of them will, will carry some kind of mutation. But like I said, not all of those mutations will necessarily result in dramatic problems for that tRNA's function. So 
that kind of extends to the fly thing, right? Like if you find a fly uh, hanging out on your counter or whatever, more than likely it has some kinds of tRNA mutations. How many of those will be problematic is, is tough to say. So you've kind of mentioned something interesting. How do you, like lab flies, how do you kind of train them to behave in the way that um, you're going to need for your, your experiments? Because you've mentioned that sort of our wild flies, um, as it were, probably behave a little bit different. So is, there, is it like circus training for flies? Like, how does that work? <laughs> so in terms of getting the behaviors that we've been observing and, and characterizing, they're actually, it's not training, it's... Um, it's manipulation of the brain via genetic mod modification. So you, um, we, we have basically these genetic tools that allow us to express a specific protein in a specific area of the brain. These, in my case, it's these nine neurons that I talked about originally. So we're expressing a protein in those neurons that causes those neurons to be way more active than they typically would be. Uh, so, if, uh, you know, if one neuron's firing like once per second, these neurons are firing 10 times per second. So their their rhythms way off, and that is what causes the change in the behavior. So we're not training them to do it. It's just that their neurochemistry has been altered such that their their behavior is now completely different. So that's what yeah. There's there's no training for this specific experiment. However, that's not to say that training isn't impossible or it is impossible in flies. There are other experiments uh, that I'm sure Ariel has probably talked about because I know he's a fly guy as well, um, where there is training involved and they are you know adept at it they can do it so like i said people underestimate what flies are capable of and uh they can definitely be used for a lot of cool things i i have certainly trained many a fly <laughs> <laughs> not not the type of training that i'm sure my flies uh liked being <laughs> participants in but you know um that's why there's no there's no ethics uh to go through with flies or any invertebrate model <laughs> so it's kind of another nice thing about working yeah. with flies right yeah for sure um I mean, this, that's the benefit. And if you, if you're looking at a Drosophila as a model for disease, and it sounds like you are in a way with your tRNA translation, um, uh, project, um, then, you know, uh, that that's one of the main benefits, right? If you say, Hey, look, we want to make this change and show that it does something, but we can't do it to humans, obviously. So, um, let's do it to flies where we, we really think there's not little, a less of an, an ethical issue there. Mm -hmm. Um, but and then the, the question is, well, well, what are, what are the differences? Right. And you'd mentioned, you know, in both, both your projects, interestingly, there is this sex difference piece, uh, which is, uh, important to look at. I'm wondering if the type of diseases that you are interested in modeling for your tRNA translation or mistranslation project are differ by by sex as well yeah that's that's certainly true and, and that's another reason that our uh, the data that josh has produced from from his preliminary or not preliminary it's it's not his first couple experiments showing the trna mutations uh having the sex difference effect that's that's why it's so interesting is because the diseases that we intend to model also have these sex differences effects um so a lot of the diseases, you know, given that I'm in the neuroscience program, a lot of the diseases I'm looking at are neurodegenerative in nature. So, you know, even most people who aren't aware of all this nitty gritty molecular science, they, they know that there are differences in, you know, the ages at which most people start to develop Alzheimer's or ALS or whatever, depending on if they're male or female. Typically, um, 
things are in the opposite direction of what we're seeing with the tRNAs, but that, that might allude to something interesting, you know. Sorry, can you just specify quickly the which direction you mean? Uh... Right. So the so it seems like the females tend to do far worse with the tRNA problems, but that doesn't necessarily hold true for a lot of the neurodegenerative diseases that we know of. Oh. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on why that might be, or? Um, nothing concrete. That's for sure. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> I guess um you know uh, you've really de uh, dug really deep into the you know Drosophila world. You've you've studied it at like every level of your education basically <laughs> during your undergrad, during your masters, and now during your PhD. Um, is this something that you feel is going to be a lifelong trajectory? Uh, what are your plans in that regard? Yeah, I, I honestly yeah I. I can't really imagine starting a lab that doesn't involve some degree of fly work. I think like I've just grown too accustomed to the genetic tools that we have. And then also, like you said, the lack of ethics, <laughs> like it seems, it seems foreign to me now to have to go to someone and be like, is this okay? Is this okay to do? Like, I remember when I, when I first joined my master's, um, as all neuroscience graduate students do who are using a model, we have to go through some kind of training. Um, for either animal uh, ethics or human ethics, if they're doing like brain scans or whatever. So I go to the animal training uh, seminar, which is like a day long. And then I take all these notes and I bring them to my supervisor and I say, okay, we need to have our proposal in by this date. They need to know how many animals we're using and what we're using them for and so on and so forth. I still remember the look she gave me of just like pure confusion and like disgust of having to do all of that stuff. And then she let me know that um, the animal ethics committee doesn't consider flies to be animals <laughs> and that we didn't need to worry about any of that. So now having dealt with that lack of kind of, um, barriers for like four years or so, it's, you know, I can't imagine having to go through all of that constantly. Um, and then, you know, like I said, the genetic tools are just so, so, so cool that not having access to that would be heartbreaking <laughs> as a scientist. So that's your plan uh, after PhD, you want to stick with research and focus on flies? I think so. Yeah. I mean, like I, I change my mind every six months, but as of right now, I think, yeah, a, a small, I think a small school would be best suited to kind of my lifestyle and, uh, you know, work-life balance and all that kind of stuff. So I think small school lab, a couple courses would be, would be really, really nice. I guess, um, you know, maybe we can leave on on a note for somebody else who is listening who is interested in this type of life and re the research world uh maybe flies maybe not um and they're also trying to you know think about their work-life balance um what what kind of recommendation would you give to someone who maybe is in undergrad and they're thinking about grad school um just just reach out to someone honestly like for the most part most people love talking about themselves. Like I, I reckon that's probably why you have, you know, a constant supply of people to come on this show is like people enjoy talking about what they've been doing. Um, so if you're an undergrad student who's, you know, maybe interested in flies or interested in whatever else, you can relatively easily go through like the, the lab members of your favorite PI in your undergrad courses, uh, see what kind of grad students they have and shoot them an email. And they'll more than likely answer you and tell you exactly what they've been working on. 
Uh, and oftentimes they'll even allow you to volunteer. There are some labs that have work study positions where that you can get paid for uh, while also getting these lab experiences and kind of figuring out if it's you know something you'd like to spend your days on. Um, so yeah, just reaching out and talking to someone, looking for any opportunities like that that, that might exist and just having conversations with people, I think is super, super worthwhile. Yeah, I think I, I think I would echo that sentiment. You know, you gotta you gotta stick your neck out and, and contact people, and people are pretty amenable. At least at least in science, that's where you and I are more familiar. Familiar, maybe Elizabeth could say otherwise for other fields. No, absolutely. I think it applies across fields and any type of research. It's really just important to put your name out there. And I would say, if you're an early career researcher, don't be hesitant to volunteer to get your your name out there and some publications and, and your foot in the door it's it's a really great way to make connections absolutely well uh brendan um before we let you go can you just tell us uh where people might be able to find your work or related work online sure uh yeah so i actually i don't have any social media so you can't find me necessarily but I'm a member of Dr. Amanda Maring's lab at Western University. Um, she's a big deal on Twitter, so you can probably find her on there. Her handle, I believe, is at Fly Behavior, um, but uh, she also has, you know, a website on the Western University page that uh, should be relatively easy to find if you're interested okay. in reaching out. Excellent, excellent. Uh, maybe we'll put that in the um, episode notes. Thanks for coming on, Brendan. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame, and my co-host was Elizabeth Moeller. We've been speaking with Brendan Charles, and this episode was produced also by me. Um, if you'd like to get involved in the show, uh, come on as a guest, or if you're a graduate student at Western, or, you know, um, get involved with the committee, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Um, we have social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can follow us there at gradcastradio. Um, you want to listen to us, we're on the radio, Radio Western 94.9 FM. Um, you can also see all our episodes on our website, gradcast.ca or uh, any podcast app. Uh, just look us up. You'll see a purple logo uh, easily found. Uh, alternatively, certain episodes are available in video format uh, on youtube that's also broadcast radio so i'm there thank you for listening have a good night